Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I'd like to welcome everyone in the audience today and thank you for taking time to be with us as we help public, private, and nonprofit organizations tackle important uh, issues in getting broadband everywhere that it needs to be. Uh, today, we are going to revisit an area, a community, actually. Um, several months ago, well, probably a little longer than that, uh, we had uh, talked about um, the Three Ring Blinder project in Maine and what that was about and what it was going to do and the promise and so forth. And now, uh, a year later, or a year after I started the show, I'm happy to report that the Three Ring Binder Project is doing quite well. They're open for business. Uh, there's a lot of excitement as this project starts to move, <clears throat> as this project starts to move forward. And uh, our guest today, uh, again, is um, Josh Broder, who is the head of Tilson Technology Management. Um, Josh has been, like I said, been with us before, uh, giving us an outline of what was going on with the project and what was the future promise of the project. Now today we're going to talk about, you know, what's next now that the project is complete and things are are moving forward. So, Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. Happy to be here. So, since last we spoke, um, you have completed a major. $25 million project. It is, um, I believe, ahead of schedule and on budget. And, and probably the first question that everybody wants to know is, how were you able to do that? <laughs> how did you manage to, <laughs> you know, pull, pull that magic stuff off there? Well, thanks. Uh, yeah, so that's right. The project uh, was finished this summer, uh, so way ahead of schedule, months and months ahead of schedule. And and is on budget, and any time you're dealing with a, a big capital project, and in this case it's a $32 million capital project, it's always a, a, a race against the schedule and, and a crunch against the budget. So we're really pleased to have finished the project um, way ahead and, and within the, the federal dollars and the private dollars that have been allocated. Um, my company, Tilson, uh, was hired by the uh, owners of the main fiber company, uh, which received the federal grant and own and operate the network, um, to manage the capital project from the from the original grant award to the completion and and the punch list. and And I would say that, as with any really complicated project, the the things that impact schedule and budget um, are are pretty complicated. There's there's a lot of moving pieces and. The reasons that it could be ahead or behind uh, are many. I think for us, the the primary reason uh, why it came in in, in such uh, fighting trim uh, was that uh, in the early days of the project, we were attentive to uh, the permitting and the regulatory environment to build the project. So as is the case with most large construction projects, and, and while this is a a technology fiber optic uh, telecom project, in fact, is a construction project that requires ditch digging and and placement of utility poles and and uh, you know some heavy construction activities. Uh, the hardest part is getting the construction crews to the starting line. And in, in the case of uh, this particular project and other stimulus projects like it, getting to the starting line meant wrestling through uh, environmental permitting dealing with uh, state and local regulatory issues and permissions, and gaining access to facilities owned by utilities that uh, were already in the area. These are the incumbent phone companies and the incumbent uh, electric utilities that own poles and and conduits in Maine. So uh, our early efforts in the project were to really brute force the uh, permitting and regulatory approvals that were required to get the construction teams to the starting line and I think uh, that accounts uh, for a, a lot of our success on the on the schedule and the budget, which of course are closely related. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, you were a um, stimulus broadband stimulus funded company. Are some of the steps that you went through in terms of keeping uh, you know a handle on all the regs, keeping a handle on all the permitting? Uh, before the show started, you and I talked a little bit about this, and you had a team put together just to deal with a lot of these compliance issues. Is the are the same steps necessary for um, broadband projects that are not funded by the, the stimulus? 
Yeah, that's a really good question, Craig. So uh, you have to peel the onion a little bit on the various requirements that, that come both from the funding sources uh, for those telecom projects and uh, from those organizations that regulate the activities out in the field. So in the case of stimulus, stimulus came with uh, the unusual requirements of having to do federal strength environmental permitting. Um, there's a the body of law called NEPA, the uh, National Environmental Policy Act, which stipulates that a certain level of environmental diligence be done anytime federal funds are expended. So in many cases, in non-federally funded projects, uh, this uh, very complicated and expensive and time-consuming NEPA process isn't required. So, uh, you know, stimulus came came with environmental permitting requirements that are not customary, and stimulus came with a requirement uh, for financial and programmatic reporting to several federal agencies that you also wouldn't typically see in, in other broadband projects. Uh, what is typical for um, broadband projects out in the field is the requirement to gain uh, state regulatory, local regulatory, and private approvals uh, to attach to utility poles and access conduits and other facilities, uh, both in the public right-of-way uh, and on private land. And I would say that that feature is, is one of the more time-consuming and challenging features of broadband deployment, and that's not uh, a feature that's unique to stimulus. We would encounter that any time uh, we'd build uh, any kind of broadband facility of size. What, what might also be unique about stimulus, though, was the scale of these deployments. If you think about the way that broadband networks uh, evolve, they tend to evolve incrementally, neighborhood by neighborhood, street by street. Uh, what was unique about some of these stimulus-funded uh, broadband projects was not only did they uh, come with many sort of onerous federal requirements around uh, making sure that the process was managed responsibly uh, and in a, in a compliant way, but also the sheer scale of the third-party uh, permitting and the access of private and public facilities uh, required um, a lot of work, a lot of work in the way that uh, you wouldn't see in a, in a smaller, more incremental deployment. Mm -hmm. But we have, though, in, in, in many of the states, regional projects may though may not be as complex as some of the stimulus funded ones but you still like for example there's the 23 community um Vermont project there is the wired west project in western massachusetts these are large scale in the sense of you know there are multiple communities involved but they're not stimulus funded <clears throat> it sounds like though there are still a lot of lessons from uh, what uh, you folks did in Maine that would be applicable to those um, those those regional efforts, particularly with those that have multiple jurisdictions, which I can understand in its own right is a is a burden. You know, trying to keep yeah, all those cats in the I, same I, herd. Absolutely, I think that's a that's a fair statement, and and uh, as you might expect, if stimulus was focusing on building middle mile facilities to bring high-speed fiber optics primarily into communities that didn't have access before. There's still a lot of work to be done to expand uh, connectivity from wherever those fiber optic facilities go to individual homes and, and businesses and, and community anchor institutions. And as you suggested, many of those projects to do that using non-stimulus uh, funds are quite large and multi-jurisdictional. And uh, in my company, Tilson, were moving on to many of those projects and, in fact, are facing some of the same challenges uh, that we faced on the stimulus-funded projects in gaining access uh, to the public way and gaining access to private facilities, really private property located in the public way. And these are the uh, utility, private utility-owned facilities. And, and what you would find is that, and you mentioned the Wired West project, for example, uh, which is a... Um, uh, fiber to the premise project that's planned for Western Massachusetts, um, and that covers uh, several dozen towns in Western Massachusetts. Uh, some, all, I would say, all of which are in Verizon territory. So Verizon owns lots of utility poles, but then there's a variety of electrical companies that own utility poles in those territories. Some of which are municipal utilities, uh, and others are large investor-owned utilities. So um, gaining access to those facilities is is always a challenge um, and time-consuming and sometimes expensive. And uh, in other cases, um, uh, towns 
own facilities, municipalities or county governments own facilities uh, that make it a little bit easier for nonprofits or public agencies that are trying to stimulate broadband, uh, you know, to gain access to the public way. So the lessons that, that we've learned and others have learned in some of these large stimulus projects, I think, will be catalytic to uh, some of these other last-mile projects or other regional middle-mile projects where there wasn't federal funding because I think the telecom community and the telecom consultant and contractor community is much more educated on you know, how to wrestle through some of these challenges on gaining access to those facilities. Mm -hmm. And do you also have right-of-way issues, not, I don't know if right-of-way is the right term, but getting access to people's property besides um, telephone poles? Uh, sure. So I think the the I'm just gonna I'm gonna broadly describe uh, you know the rights that you need to put telecom facilities somewhere as sort of uh, uh, real estate rights and and to have the right to put your stuff somewhere um, depends on where you want to put it and I think regionally there's some significant differences on who owns uh, the property that you want to install your uh, your private or public facilities on. And in some cases, we're talking about the public way. Uh, and in other cases, we're talking about something that's a bit more complicated. And, and I would say in, in New England, where this project in Maine is, um, what you find is you, you'll, you'll often find that pole lines and, and conduit and duct banks are located in the public way, but they're uh, owned by private companies. So you have both the necessity have the right to operate in the public right-of-way, but also the need on a commercial basis, on a contract basis, to have a right to share or attach to somebody's private property. And in many states, uh, there's a, a framework of law typically administered by the Public Utilities Commission or Department of Telecom and Cable within that state that would compel a private property owner like a power utility that owns a utility pole uh, when there's space and when it's convenient and when it's uh, responsible and safe thing to do to allow someone to deploy their broadband facilities on that private property uh, mm -hmm. because that private property is located in the public way. And in, in some states, uh, the, the states have chosen not to regulate um, that private property in the public way. And in places where the states have chosen not to do it, the federal government imposes as well. And the, and the federal standard is generally fairly permissive uh, to allowing uh, somebody wants to deploy a broadband facility like a fiber optic cable on a utility pole uh, on that private property when it's located in the public way. In mm -hmm. other cases, we, we see large tracts of uh, private land, and um, and when that private land is involved, then um, typically the person putting the telecommunications facilities there needs the consent of that private landowner. In some states and in some situations, the person deploying the broadband facility might be a public utility and might have the right via eminent domain to put their facilities there, but those cases are extremely rare. And typically, um, one of the hallmarks of a successful broadband project is uh, good stakeholder engagement and good cooperation between the person deploying the facilities and the, the owners of the, the land or the third-party facilities that, that broadband equipment needs to be deployed on. Mm -hmm. How do you look to um, local governments to maybe intercede with some of these different parties, or do you look to other stakeholders to maybe help grease the wheels or make things a little bit easier uh, as you go from jurisdiction to jurisdiction? Yeah, so we we look to um, we look to pull whatever levers that we can to accelerate the process, and and I think that was one of the reasons why the project was completed so quickly in Maine, um, as you might think if the telephone company uh, and the cable company are already in the public way and um, and you'd like let's just say hypothetically speaking you're a you're a new telecom company and you'd like to deploy broadband in a community and that community has existing utility poles and those utility poles are owned by the electric company and the phone company and probably the cable company is already on them and you'd like to provide a competing broadband service because maybe the service in the town isn't good enough or maybe mm -hmm. the prices are too high, or maybe it doesn't cover some of the ends of some of the streets. So you're not really trying to compete in the middle of town, but you're trying to get to some of the neighborhoods maybe that, that don't have uh, access. And to get to those towns, you have to pass through the towns that do have access. 
Um, and in that case, you're encountering not a greenfield where you just have to get permission to place a utility pole and run and run new cable, but you've encountered an area with some congestion and and cooperation with those existing players who already have their facilities essentially in the way is absolutely necessity. Um, and as you might expect, those existing players like the phone company and the cable company may feel like this new offering is competitive and uh, and may not be overly enthused uh, to accommodate um, the the necessary moves within the public way to allow uh, this new player to come in. So in these kind of projects, engaging with local government, uh, with local political leaders, uh, with state government, both in the regulatory apparatus at the public utility commissions, uh, and in, in terms of uh, you know state politicians and the legislatures and the executive branch, is really important because typically uh, these existing players that occupy real estate in the public way uh, are some of the biggest businesses within a state, incredibly powerful. Um, so to get them to move on something, uh, sometimes it requires some leverage and some pressure and. Uh, I would say the sort of first, the first and and most obvious play is to try and work well with those players and uh, and be accommodating and be communicative and and try and come up with some some way that that we can coexist nicely in the public way, but uh, at the same time maintaining some kind of a pressure environment so that you know existing players who who may feel like new broadband offerings are competitive uh, understand that there's a, a political gaze upon them and that. You know, being a, a good steward of the public way and and sharing the space is something that they have to do. Mm-hmm. So, in essence, each jurisdiction has its own uh, its own needs and so forth. And and ultimately, what you're trying to do is smooth out the various differences so that when when all is said and done, you get the same network to go across and deal with all these different environments. Well different political and business environments so that at the end of this you have a network that actually works and comes out on time and 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 so forth. Yeah, that's exactly right. I I mean when you um when you're when you're walking on the street and you look up at a utility pole and you see half a dozen wires on it, uh some are electrical and some are telecom. Some may belong to the local municipality for municipal fire alarm. Some may belong to a competitive telecom carrier or cable company. Some belong to the phone company. And any time that somebody new is going to come onto that pole, everybody has to cooperate to make it happen. And uh, each of those organizations has different interests, and each of those organizations is regulated differently uh, and exists in some kind of a political environment. So typically, the person who's managing the process to get onto that pole has to be attentive to you know, state and local regulation, state and local political dynamic, uh, federal law, and most importantly, uh, how to best uh, work with those organizations um, to get them to do what they're typically required to do by law. Mm-hmm. So I am a little curious. So if if you are you know you are primarily a um, a tech organization, and I, and I by you I mean anyone who's sort of is pursuing a broadband project. So whether it's a community project, a community broadband project, or a private sector project. You are putting together a team of people that are heavily um, technology oriented because you're building out a technology product. What kind of people go on the team that has to go into these different communities and massage egos and work through you know turf issues and all the rest of that that's a that's a really good question and and it speaks a little bit to how we've wickered our business so um at at Tilson, we kind of have two kinds of people we have technology people who think about IT applications and uh, network planning and, you know, sort of how to make the bits and bytes move and go where they need to go. And then we have real estate people. And I would say about half of our organization, we've got about 60 people, um, are real estate oriented. And those those are the folks who try and get the right to put physical facilities somewhere. And whether we're dealing with a, a radio tower that needs to have a cellular installation on it or a utility pole line that needs to have a a new fiber optic cable connected to it, or whether or not you want to put a new uh, set of utility poles in a place that's never had them before. Essentially, you're talking about uh, getting real estate rights to be somewhere. And um, so in our case, the kind of people that that we have on that team are uh, real estate attorneys. Uh, They're paralegals. Uh, They're people who are uh, we call site acquisition specialists. They go to zoning meetings. They get building permits. Uh, They engage... uh, with regulatory bodies like 
the State Public Utilities uh, Commission. And these are the folks that are really focused on getting the right to uh, put a facility somewhere and essentially get that construction crew to the starting line. And, and what I would say is that large organizations that deploy networks uh, have come to understand that the difference between building and running a network and getting the right, the real estate right to put your network somewhere are actually really different activities. And if you take mm -hmm. a look at some of the largest telecom carriers in the United States, um, typically they outsource uh, the acquisition of those rights. They hire people to go out and figure out how do I get permitted or licensed to be where I need to be versus uh, doing it in-house. Because the requirements of those kind of sort of permitting and, and real estate legal people it's a really different skill set than than those that you know maintain and operate networks. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And um, are they are, are folks like this? Would you typically, if you were dealing with a larger area, would you tend to hire folks like literally from within those jurisdictions? Yeah. So that's a great question. So uh, I'll give you an example. We were recently hired by um, a, a wireless company that wanted to deploy. Um, new cellular sites uh, in New England. And um, and the people that we put on the projects were people that were familiar with the you know local permitting offices where those wireless sites needed to go into. They had relationships with the planning offices. They knew the terrain. They knew the town. They knew the folks in the town that would be grumpy about new development uh, and would go and talk to them first and you know try and get people to understand the project. So So having those local people who understand uh, the regulatory environment, you know, whether that's at the state level or even within a municipal uh, kind of ordinance environment is really important. So oftentimes uh, the firms that get hired to do this kind of work may be regional firms, but those regional firms have local people, uh, fixers, if you will, uh, mm -hmm. who operate in that local environment and, and figure out how to navigate, you know, the individual intricacies of that environment. I would say that in the in the broadband universe, uh, typically pull attachment, when we think about fiber deployment, sort of pull attachment's the dominant activity in the east, um, we think about uh, sort of state-level engagement because that's regulated at the state level and the kind of organizations that own poles typically are bigger than one municipality. Not always. There's municipal utilities, for example. But mm -hmm. the sort of regulation of this pole attachment environment is a state-level activity, and the kind of people that engage with that are, are sort of state-level folks. And in terms of, uh, you know, putting up wireless facilities on towers, um, which, you know, is an increasingly dominant activity with, you know, the deployment of LTE, uh, typically that's a municipal activity, and the kind of people that do that permitting have an understanding of that particular municipal environment. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, you know, we probably should take a minute or two to just have you describe what your company does because there may be a lot of folks who aren't familiar with uh Tilson Technology that didn't catch yeah. the first show you. Yeah, sure, that that's great. Um so uh so Tilson is a company that helps uh network owners deploy facilities. And uh, in our case, we help both uh, network owners who are deploying wireless facilities and network owners who are deploying uh, fiber facilities. And, mm -hmm. and the kind of network owners we work with um, are are really dependent on the kind of technology that we're working on. So in our fiber group, um, we deploy uh, networks for uh, – we have some clients who are telecom carriers. Um, you know, these would be the CLEX and the cable companies and the ILEX, um, you know, that consumers are typically used to working with. Mm -hmm. um, but but increasingly, and particularly during the stimulus years here, we've been working for I'll call non-traditional network owners. These are uh, state um, broadband development uh, organizations, um, university systems, folks who won federal stimulus money to deploy networks who maybe hadn't deployed networks before and needed some people to help navigate you know the permitting environment and the pole attachment environment and the construction management uh, of those facilities. On the wireless side of our business, we primarily work for uh, uh, cellular carriers deploying um, new cellular sites and for smart grid operators who are deploying uh, wireless networks to automate their smart grid, both for connecting to consumers and smart meters and also automating their substations. So uh, our company provides essentially uh, three unique skill sets in that fiber and wireless world. One is 
the sort of site acquisition function, getting the real estate rights to be somewhere, uh, either to attach to poles or get into conduits or get up on a radio tower or a rooftop. Um, construction management to help get networks deployed and built and consulting to help people think through, how do I bring broadband uh, to my community? What's the right technology? What's the right uh, business model? How can it be sustainable? Um, so uh, we've got some ho folks who help people think it through and some folks who help people get it done. Mm -hmm. that's, um, that's pretty impressive. So for those communities that are in the planning stage, or if if there are a, a regional project that's in the planning stage, what are the I don't know top three pieces of advice you would give them to make both sides of the house effective? So you have your tech, you know, your bits and bytes people, and you have your folks that deal with all the local issues, the logistics, if you will. Um, what are your you know three pieces of advice for each group as far yeah, okay. as getting them ready to be successful? So, so in this in this scenario, we we have somebody who's looking to deploy a network, and we're talking about overcoming the challenges of the deployment as opposed to uh, uh, having a sustainable business model in the first place to do it. Because mm -hmm. we'll so, come back to the business model part, but I think this okay. element we that haven't sounds, talked about a lot on the show. Right, that sounds good. So, so in terms of dealing with the deployment, I I think one of the biggest challenges that people face is uh, getting the right uh, to to locate their facilities where they need to be located um, to deploy their network. And so my, my first, of, if I were to pick three things, would be uh, to be really attentive towards uh, your legal rights to deploy your facility where you want to deploy it. So uh, an example of a community organization that's um, pulled together funding to deploy, let's say, fiber to the premise in a community, and they want to attach to utility poles to deploy fiber in each home in the community, um, one of the places where they their their eyes should turn first is to figuring out uh, what kind of uh, you know legal entity they need to have uh, to be able to compel the access to those public and private facilities. And oftentimes, certainly not always, but oftentimes, uh, it helps to be a public utility. And in many states, it's not as hard to be a, a public utility as some communities might think. And being attentive to the sort of corporate organizational structure and the and the status within the, the Public Utility um, uh, Commission or Department of Telecom and Cable, as the case may be in each state, is a, a really important status to be attentive to because everything that you do afterwards is built uh, on that foundation of the right to compel access to the public way or to private facilities. Um, the, the second area uh, that I think is really important um, for folks deploying networks to think about is um, identifying early on who the uh, full range of facility owners and permitting organizations they have to engage with uh, to gain access uh, to those facilities. And, um, and by that I mean who, who are all the utility pole owners, uh, who are the state uh, local agencies that um, you know, require permitting uh, early in the process so that some of the long lead time negotiations and permit permit processing can happen even while uh, the network deployment activities are starting to take shape. Uh, in, in many cases, broadband networks, uh, I think in the way that we're talking about it, are, are being deployed by nonprofit organizations and public agencies which have requirements to do competitive procurements. And, and often those competitive procurements for materials and construction services can be uh, time-consuming and lengthy. And what I like to tell people is that they really ought to be starting the permitting process and the negotiation process for getting the types of agreements and permits in place that are required to access those pub the public way while that procurement process is ongoing so that they don't hire vendors and buy materials and then find themselves at the starting line of what could be a, a process that takes a year or more. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the final the final and, and, and third uh, piece of advice after you have uh, the legal right to compel access to facilities and you've engaged, you've identified and engaged early on the various sort of permits and third-party approvals you need to be on those facilities would be to start contingency planning about what uh, the organization is going to do if they don't get the kind of cooperation they need to get onto those facilities 
and identifying the levers, whether they're legal levers or regulatory levers or political levers that they're going to be able to pull on uh, to force um, the organizations that you know, need to make room for them or need to allow them uh, to traverse their facilities uh, to do so in a, in a timely way. And what I often see is that uh, the sort of contingency planning around what to do in that eventuality starts once the problem becomes intractable. And I, I would say typically some prior planning about how that, how that could go if it doesn't go well um, could allow the organization to start to act and start to pull on those levers or threaten to pull on those levers before, you know, too many people get entrenched on a, on a position where they may not be able to move off of it. So uh, if, if the escalation plan is, is, a, is a playbook that's already been written and is perhaps even shared transparently with the organizations that, you know, may feel that the project is competitive or they just may not want to cooperate, then typically it, it may prevent escalation and having to play through on what could be some expensive dispute resolution down the road um, by essentially telegraphing where it's going to go in the first place. Mm, okay. <clears throat> very interesting, very interesting. I, have, I do have a question from... Um, one of the uh one of our audience members today um have you been hearing any kind of conversation about NTIA leveraging some of these middle mile projects for the uh, FirstNet public broadcast safety network yeah so i've been hearing a, a lot about that topic specifically um be, because Tilson's managing several of these NTIA BTOP funded projects uh in New England um you know, we attend conferences with the NTIA and engage with the agency. Um, and uh, obviously, their next big project uh, after BTOP wanes uh, is FirstNet. And, and for those of your listeners who may not be familiar with the FirstNet project, it's a uh, it's a large federal project that was uh, written into statute as part of the Jobs Act. And uh, the Jobs Act basically says that there will be a new organization called FirstNet that will be independent and self-governing and embedded in the NTIA uh, that will build a uh, nationwide interoperable wireless broadband public safety network. That's kind of a mouthful. So mm -hmm. let, me, let, me unpa let me unpack what that is. Um, so nationwide, this is going to be a federal program that will extend uh, all over the U.S., uh, interoperable. It'll, it'll work between multiple agencies, both uh, state, local, and federal, uh, it'll be wireless. It'll be wireless on the 700 megahertz uh, spectrum, uh, and it um, and it will provide service to public safety agencies. and And this is everything from you know police and fire at the local level to you know federal three-letter agencies. And uh, the NTIA is already starting to look at you know what do they need to do to meet their federal obligations on this. And mostly, what they need to do is they need to support. Uh, FirstNet and FirstNet itself, which again is self-governing, it's got a uh, it's got a, a board that's been appointed to it, which includes some representatives from some federal agencies and then uh, industry experts and public safety stakeholders uh, will essentially decide uh, how the network's going to be deployed. Um, and part of the statute says that FirstNet will make use of existing facilities. Uh, it doesn't call out BTOP facilities specifically, but it does say uh, that uh, they'll make good use of existing facilities. And um, one of the challenges that the, the FirstNet organization has is that its budget is roughly $7 billion, which sounds like a lot of money until you realize that deploying uh, a nationwide uh, interoperable public safety network probably means using LTE cellular technology. And the cellular industries last year spent something like $64 billion deploying cellular technology and as as most people who have 4G handsets know that there certainly isn't ubiquitous uh, 4G uh, LTE coverage around the U.S. So $7 billion doesn't get you a very big network. So mm -hmm. leveraging existing physical facilities, including the BTOP middle mile fiber, may be a way that FirstNet's able uh, to leverage uh, the network build-out. I would say that FirstNet hasn't made any decisions about uh, the topology of the network or, or how it's going to be done. And I believe they currently have a, a request for information out on the street. And if listeners are interested in this, they can see the request for information on the NTIA website. 
and uh, the request for information essentially asks the public to comment on um, how best to deploy this network and if existing cellular networks should be leveraged or if there should be unique FirstNet-specific network facilities. And uh, looking into my crystal ball, my best guess is that FirstNet will be forced uh, to leverage existing cellular facilities and existing private investment and LTE facilities to meet their statutory mandate. And that means that uh, BTOP networks who have middle-mile facilities will probably be best served by engaging with cellular carriers who may have backhaul needs uh, in order to participate in, in FirstNet. Okay. So let's talk about you guys in LTE. Uh, again, we, we talked very briefly about this before the show started, but what is, is Tilson's role in that LTE space, and w why should the general public that's been following broadband care about LTE? Yeah, sure. So um, first, my my context is what, what Tilson does uh, in the cellular space, which has helped cellular carriers deploy uh, new sites, improve existing sites, um, and deploy new technologies. And I guess I'm going to talk about three things to answer that question. I'm going to talk a little bit about what LTE is, and then I'm going to talk about distributed antenna systems, and I'm going to talk about small cells. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think one of the challenges of um, the LT conversation is that there's some term confusion uh, that happens, and, and there's a lot of marketing that's that's going on from different carriers about what is 4G and what is LTE. So I guess I'll just address the the, the 3G and the 4G question first. Um, the the networks that we've been been using up until recently have primarily been 3G networks, and and 3G just refers to the third generation. And uh, the, the 4G networks that we're moving to, uh, they've been deployed in some markets and are, are being aggressively deployed elsewhere, uh, use a, a technology called LTE. And what's exciting about LTE is that it provides regular cellular wireless connections at very fast speeds. And what, what's further confusing is that certain types of 3G services for certain cellular carriers are referred to by those carriers in their marketing materials and even on the on the handset itself as 4G. So when we talk about 4G, I think it used to mean this faster LTE technology. Mm -hmm. And what it's come to mean uh, in common usage is 4G technologies, this LTE facility, and also 3G technologies that have been tuned up to run a little bit faster. And an example of a 3G technology that's been tuned up to run a little bit faster is T-Mobile's uh, HSPA Plus network. And and what that means is that it's a 3G technology, it's not LTE, but the speeds, the throughput, because of the way the equipment that's being used and the way the network is architected is actually behaves a little bit like LTE. Maybe not quite as fast as LTE could go, but uh, but it goes pretty fast. And what, what I think becomes confusing to people is uh, this sort of sense of term confusion when some people use the term 4G and other people use the term LTE and they use them interchangeably. Mm -hmm. In fact, all LTE is 4G, but not all 4G is LTE. So there's this uh, legacy uh, 3G tuned up to run faster technology that's out there that actually run quite, quite well. To confuse things further, um, in different markets and with different carriers, LTE behaves differently because LTE refers to the technology that's being used wirelessly to connect uh, that wireless handset and, uh, and the tower. But what goes into determining performance includes how many individual phones are, are registering with a single tower, how that tower is connected to the Internet. Is it using a fiber optic connection or a wireless connection? And is that connection fast or is it slow? And uh, I think what's interesting is that PC Magazine uh, ran a study uh, across um, 30 U.S. cities. They tested LTE, and they found vast differences uh, between uh, download speeds uh, in those cities. And in some places, they were as fast as 25 uh, megabits per second, and in other places, they were as slow as 8.9 megabits per second using the same LTE technology with the same carrier, so vastly different. And, uh, and in some cities, they found that, uh, you know, let's say that two dominant carriers, AT&T and Verizon, 
using similar technology were really different in one city, where one was faster in one city and the other was faster in the other city. And that had to do with really how many subscribers were on, on a given service in a city and what their investment had been made. Um, I, I would say traditionally uh, uh, in the cellular industry, we've confused the term coverage and the term capacity. So mm -hmm. um, uh, right now LTE isn't as widely deployed uh, as some of the other 3G technologies. So virtually, not every community, and certainly not in some super rural areas, but in virtually every community in America, you have access to 3G technologies, but in relatively few communities in America, uh, although many of the metro areas have it, um, you have access to 4G. So we, we refer to that as coverage, which is the ability uh, to connect using a, a given technology. Um, what is more challenging to, to pin down and, and probably more important for the actual user experience is capacity. So uh, it's good to have coverage, but it's better to have capacity. So I can have coverage with a very fast connection, but if I have insufficient capacity, if I have hundreds of phones registering to a single site and that site has limited backhaul back to the Internet, then the actual performance may be quite poor. But uh, mm -hmm. I, I guess what I would say about this LTE technology, which is important uh, to the broadband community, is that the LTE technology, when it has sufficient coverage and when it has sufficient capacity, offers fiber-like speeds to a wireless device. And those wireless devices can be extended to hotspots, which can run multiple devices in a home. They can be embedded in machines that need connectivity, and, and obviously they can power our smartphones. Uh, one of the challenges right now, I think, for consumers and for communities who are planning around broadband is that LTE technology typically comes uh, with a, a, a pretty limiting uh, cap on the amount of data that can be consumed um, without spending significantly more money, and that starts to drive people away from thinking about LTE as a one-and-done solution uh, for community broadband at sort of fiber-to-the-home speeds. Uh, there are some carriers who still have uh, not imposed uh, price caps, and I think as networks become more robust, uh, perhaps we'll have access as consumers to greater amounts of data um, at, at lower costs and, and with more permissive caps. Uh, but today, I think what we're seeing is that in some communities we have, have access to very fast speeds, um, but that uh, but the lack of unlimited uh, download and upload uh, means that we're still looking to terrestrial uh, technologies um, for the kind of fiber to the premise speeds that, that people are, are starting to expect. Um, okay. the, one, the one thing we can say is that, uh, is that with, with handsets, with individual handsets like you know, the iPhone 4 or the iPhone 5, um, is that they're either LTE or they're not. So um, when we think about the iPhone 4, this is to add further confusion, the iPhone 4 is a 3G device and the iPhone 5 is a 4G device. And I, I think certainly not an Apple employee, and, and I couldn't know for sure, but there's been a lot of speculation that the iPhone 5 was released when it was because if it had been released sooner, there would have been insufficient LTE coverage uh, for people to feel like they were getting a much faster phone. Mm -hmm. um, so really, really complicated interplay here between fiber optic facilities connecting to these towers, between the type of radios that are deployed, the interplay between coverage and capacity. Uh, but what I can say is, uh, from the from the guy on the ground deploying the network standpoint is that these carriers are investing a tremendous amount of money in getting these networks uh, both expanded in coverage and in capacity. And a, a couple of uh, technologies and techniques they're using to do that are worth noting uh, because they, they leverage some of these fiber facilities that uh, communities that are developing broadband and, and some of the BTOP uh, networks have deployed. Um, and, and those two technologies are distributed antenna systems and small cells. Uh, distributed antenna systems are a, a way of providing a, a cellular signal, uh, both from a coverage and a capacity standpoint, um, in an area that is not a, a single site. And, and traditionally, we call a, a cellular site a macro site, um, meaning that it's a, a single large site that covers a, a large area. Uh, and a distributed antenna system instead of having all the antennas clustered on this macro site covering a, a large area from a central location, spreads out the antennas for a distributed coverage area. And those tend to happen in, in two ways. One would be a, a, a distributed antenna system that's outdoors or in a tunnel. 
that has a small antenna every so often arrayed in a line. And typically there's a, a fiber optic cable, and every so often on that fiber optic cable is a small antenna uh, that emits the cellular signal. And then it goes a little farther and has another small antenna. And this is great when you have uh, a situation where there's a narrow road corridor where you need coverage, uh, or you're in a tunnel, uh, or you're in a stadium, uh, like an outdoor stadium, and you have lots of people and you need antennas distributed across the stadium. Mm -hmm. uh, the other type of uh, distributed antenna system we're seeing, particularly with these LTE build-outs, is an in-building distributed antenna array system, or in-building DAS. And that's when you have an antenna located on each floor. And you may get to the building over a fiber network, a metro Ethernet ring, or uh, some kind of a fiber facility that enters the building. And then you may even get around the building on fiber, but on, I won't even call it the last mile, but the last few feet, rather than running fiber to the cube, uh, there's a small antenna on the floor, and, and these are typically in places where there's lots of people, like office buildings or hospitals or stadiums, um, when these antennas are, are distributed indoors. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the other technology we're seeing that uh, is starting to consume a, quite a bit of fiber and, and is allowing uh, LTE operators to drive faster speeds uh, to consumers in areas where there's a greater capacity requirement. Again, this isn't all about coverage, it's also about capacity, is uh, this thing called a small cell. And uh, if you think about traditional cellular deployments, you see a big tower by the side of the road with lots of antennas on it, this, this macro mm -hmm. site that I described before. Uh, what we're finding is that that may provide sufficient uh, coverage within an area, but it may provide insufficient capacity. Uh, if you have too many users on that tower, uh, it just overwhelms the tower's ability uh, to keep the, the speeds up. So what we're seeing carriers do in some markets is uh, take small sites or small cells and deploy uh, maybe rather than multiple radios on a big site, maybe just one small radio or two small radios uh, in, a, in an area where they, they have some capacity challenges and they'd like to offload some of those users from the macro site onto this small cell locally. So you'll see that in a public square where you have lots of people eating at lunch uh, you might see three or four small cells deployed pointing into the square uh, to pick up uh, some of that uh, capacity challenge. And in each of those cells, whether we're talking about a macro site or one of these DAS arrays in building or outdoors that I described, or a, a small cell that's helping to offload capacity in an urban area, um, all of those require some kind of a backhaul. And in some cases, they're backhauled wirelessly with microwave, but in other cases, they're connected with a terrestrial circuit, sometimes copper, sometimes fiber. And then eventually, all of those signals get aggregated and make their way back to backbone fiber networks and no-mile fiber networks. So uh, the kind of broadband development that happened during BTOP, where the federal government invested you know, $7.5 billion in largely middle-mile facilities, is actually quite supportive of these kind of deployments because eventually we need to get these aggregated signals, uh, all of this coverage and all of this capacity and all of this very fast LTE broadband and fiber to the premise, uh, and enhanced DSL and all of the fun things that are happening on the last mile have to get aggregated and backhauled out of those communities. So I think we're still on a on a high fiber diet, even though we're doing a lot more wirelessly to connect individual consumers. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, see. We've got about <clears throat> ten eleven minutes here. Let's roll the discussion over to economic development. Um, always a topic of um, of interest from in my world. Um, a recent uh, survey that I completed of economic development professionals looks at the issue of, uh, well, a couple of issues. One is how much or which particular economic outcomes we could see broadband having an impact on. And, and these folks weighed in on you know to how much degree broadband would be effective. But they also looked at um, wireless alone, fiber alone, in terms of which they expected to have a greater impact or which they found to have a greater impact. And then finally, they looked at speed. So if I start with the speed part of the discussion, <clears throat> a lot of folks, both in rural areas, suburban areas, and maybe some to the in the urban areas, seem to coalesce around 100 um, megs per second. 
as the minimum needed to have impact on on things such as drawing businesses to town, making current businesses more competitive, opening new markets for them, uh, increasing home-based businesses, and so on. And then this was in like they they feel that they need this by 2014. They also felt that wireless would have less of an impact in these areas than fiber. So first question is, with the new LTE stuff that's coming out, could that have an impact in economic development if people are saying, you know, the minimum speed we need is somewhere between 50 and 120 megs per per second? Yeah, so that's a really good question, this idea of, uh, you know, how much is enough and and could some of these wireless technologies, you know, meet those needs? Um and the FCC actually took a look at this issue when they deliberated uh, the various changes they were going to make in the um, in the uh, uh, federal rules around providing subsidy to rural carriers when they uh, when they rolled out the Connect America Fund. And the Connect America Fund takes federal dollars uh, that were originally uh, being used for um, uh, ensuring that there is universal service uh, through a fund called the Universal Service Fund uh, for plain old telephone line connectivity and starts to redirect um, those funds towards broadband deployment. And when they looked at that, they said, we think, FCC thinks that um, we're going to serve most people in rural areas using some kind of terrestrial wired broadband connection uh, and, and and they were silent on this issue of is it, is it fiber or is it copper. Um, but they also said that people have an expectation in these communities of having very fast mobile broadband. Um, so they, they bifurcated the Connect America Fund into providing subsidies to telephone companies to provide terrestrial broadband uh, with a wire uh, and also into a mobility fund that would help uh, deploy more towers in rural areas. And I, I think the place where they landed was that uh, in a modern society, from a public safety standpoint, from an economic development standpoint, from a uh, would have would consumers come to expect and demand standpoint, uh, that we would want a fast broadband connection in our home and a fast broadband connection while we were moving around. Uh, that that does beg the question, if, if the wireless connection gets really fast, could it serve both? And I, I think that gets back to your question. Uh, you sort of floated this number of 100 megs as being you know, potentially a number that could be transformative economically. And, and I would actually agree with that number for now. Uh, the FCC has sort of set a goal of getting more broadband uh, to people in the 4 meg download range, which which I think is a, a woefully inadequate number. And I think As do economic that, development professionals. They pretty much pan <laughs> anything below 25 megs, I mean, as being fairly useless to the process of economic development. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I think for people who have nothing, four megs feels pretty good, and I think for people who have four megs, twenty megs seems outstanding. I would say to be transformative and competitive, competitive with the economies uh, that you know we're we're hoping to jostle for market share with, and the various things that we do, a hundred megs is really table stakes to being a serious competitor. Right. Exactly. I would, I, I, I would caution though that a hundred megs might be a low number soon. And, and one of the challenges with broadband and, and setting targets around speed is that it's a bit of a moving target and it's a bit of a free-flowing river. So uh, if, if we fixate on 100, I think what we'll find is by the time we're at 100, we'll wish we had a gig. Um, and because of the cost right. of the equipment, it's coming down so quickly. And once we push into 100, it drives us into fiber necessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, then... Uh, I, I'm working with a, a number of municipalities who are doing, uh, you know, publicly funded or public-private partnership kind of fiber to the home or fiber to the premise projects in their communities. And uh, and the advice that I'm giving to these municipalities is to start at a gig because these networks take some time to get funded and deploy, and it will it will be no time at all uh, before we feel like gig is the standard. Um, and today. Uh, we could sit here and try and guess at what some of the applications that could be really bandwidth consumptive are. Um, but I'm guessing that, you know, just a few years ago, we probably couldn't have guessed uh, the things that we're doing now uh, that drive lots and lots of bandwidth use. So, um, 
I think that I think for folks who are making large capital investments, the incremental difference between 100 meg and a gig is actually not that great once you've committed mm-hmm. to building fiber plant. And fiber still remains uh, the gold standard uh, for communities that want to provide something that makes them truly competitive. Uh, you know, in terms of a, a last mile technology. I I would say though that all of these technologies have a role to play because um, the physicality of each community is different. And, and no one's operating on an unlimited budget, and, and obviously deploying fiber to the home is, is, a, is a very expensive proposition. So communities that have existing copper infrastructure, they can get more out of it with faster uh, forms of cable doxis or uh, new forms of uh, DSL or Ethernet over copper. Uh, those technologies have a role to play. Uh, and in communities that have... Uh, rough terrain and uh, lack of existing physical terrestrial facilities, lack of wires on the poles. Um, you know, wireless internet service providers using fixed wireless have a role to play. And, and I think because um, cellular technologies have gotten so fast and cellular uh, companies have been so aggressive in their deployment, uh, both in a coverage and capacity standpoint, you know, for consumers who want to quickly get broadband and want to get it cheaply and get it ubiquitously, uh, you know, at something that's reasonably fast, maybe not, uh, you know, uh, world competitive gigabit speed, but want to get screaming fast internet, uh, you know, LTE really has a role to play. So um, there's no single answer in a community, but what I would say, if money was no object, I'd like to see a a gig via fiber uh, into every home in America. But wouldn't it make sense to put more emphasis on supporting uh, wireless ISPs, particularly that that can develop and build fixed wireless networks that can deliver a gig or more of speed? Because you know, in the last two months, I've had two different uh, WISP on board on on the show who've described you know their networks. Now they have certain limitations, and it doesn't necessarily support mobility. But from the standpoint of the advantages of wireless, you know the speed, the relative low cost to build, so forth and so on, that if you can max speed or come close to maxing speed of a wired network, then why don't we encourage those more than cellular? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, I, I think in the case of... of wireless internet service providers, people have been saying that 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 technology, that fixed wireless technology, would be obsolete for years. And the manufacturers of that equipment and the people that deploy it continue to innovate, and it continues to get better, and it continues to hang on. And typically in the markets where those technologies are successful, there's some reason, there's some game-changing reason why fixed wireless is really necessary. And it sometimes uh, has to do with... um, uh, the distances involved between uh, subscribers um, or the physicality of the terrain. Um, In other cases, fixed wireless really isn't feasible um, because uh, for some of those same reasons, uh, there may not be line of sight uh, that's available and and the the way the network would need to be deployed would actually drive unreasonable costs. So again, I, I think while there are faster and faster fixed wireless facilities available, it's certainly not a not a solution for all places. Uh, I will note that uh, in Atlantic Canada, um, in, uh, in Newfoundland, um, there's a, a wireless uh, to the home. It's fiber to the node and wireless to the home network being deployed by Eastlink. Uh, uh, I believe with some provincial stimulus um, to uh, provide ubiquitous sort of fiber fiber equivalent speeds using a wireless technology. And, and I think that, you know, in terms of thinking about a model for, you know, very dense fixed wireless deployment for residential use, I think the whole world is watching that carefully to see how that's going to go. Um, but again, I think the specifics of, you know, an individual community's um, requirements, technical requirements, the, the terrain and the budget sometimes recommend a variety of technologies. Um, mm-hmm. I, I do think that, one of the one of the limitations of wireless technologies is that there's not an infinite amount of spectrum. Right. And uh, I think that, you know, when you're dealing with a fiber, um, although fiber typically deals with a visible light spectrum, the, the, uh, the amount of bandwidth that's theoretically available over a dedicated terrestrial connection uh, is is just going to be greater over time. But right. okay. uh, we, we continue to see innovation in, in wireless technologies and 
I think if you had brought an RF engineer, a radio frequency engineer on the show three or four years ago and said, is there going to be a commercially viable uh, consumer cost competitive gigabit fixed wireless solution available, they would have said, no way, it's just not possible. And 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 here we are. They continue to innovate. So um, it's certainly an answer, but okay. it's not the answer well, we for need every, to, every community. Um, I don't want to cut you short. We're just about out of time, though. Um, I don't want to lose us all together. Thank you very much, Josh. This has been extremely valuable, extremely helpful information. Again, congratulations on uh, completing the project so well, and I look forward to talking to you again as you guys make the next big stride up in Maine. Yeah, thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. All righty. Take care, and thank you to our audience. Have a good day.